Hello, and welcome to another episode of Blase Blah Film Chat. On this episode, I will be discussing the film Devil in a Blue Dress. I chose this film because I feel like every time I see one of those lists of great black films or a list of films you must have seen as a black person, this film is rarely mentioned. Somehow it's gotten lost in the shuffle of great black films and being that it's written and directed by a black person stars several of our greatest black actors, namely Denzel Washington and Don Cheeto. And it's even based on source material by a legendary black author. It's odd that it's oftentimes overlooked or forgotten about in the say 25 greatest black films of all time discussion, in my opinion. So in preparation for this podcast episode, I decided to watch the film again for the umpteenth time and I wound up telling a co-worker how awesome of a film this was. And she made me realize that I hadn't read the book that the film was based on. So I decided that I needed to read the book because maybe it would give me a broader perspective that I hadn't had. And you know what? It actually did. So for this episode, for the second half of it, I will devote... I will devote... um. I will devote it to a small discussion about the book in relation to the film and just give you what some of my observations were. So I think that'll be kind of interesting. Also, I think I need to give a warning for those who have never watched Devil in a Blue Dress. You should probably pause this podcast episode right here because it's full of spoilers so I would suggest that you go watch it it's actually available now for streaming on the stars channel and actually just a warning this entire podcast series will basically be nothing but spoilers Because in order for me to have the type of discussion about black films that I want to, I have to give away the major story arcs and twists and turns in a film in order to highlight, you know, the standout filmmaking and screenwriting techniques. Not that I'm an expert or film scholar, but I feel like it's important to dissect films so that audiences and filmmakers, as well as aspiring filmmakers and screenwriters alike, can understand just 
you know, why we like these films and what makes them so great. So with that being said, this film was released in 1995, written and directed by Carl Franklin. While Carl Franklin has directed a lot of television and several films, I personally feel like this was his best directorial work. Devil in a Blue Dress was adapted from the novel of the same name, which was written by Walter Mosley. For those unfamiliar with Mosley, he is one of our most prolific African-American authors who is widely known for his crime fiction, mystery novels, particularly those that feature the character Ezekiel Easy Rollins, who is a black private investigator in Los Angeles. Mr. Mosley is also in recent years expanded in writing and producing for television, most notably on the popular show Snowfall. So let's get into our discussion of Devil in a Blue Dress. The main protagonist goes by the name of Ezekiel Rollins, nicknamed Easy. Easy is a black war veteran originally from Houston, Texas that now resides in the area of Los Angeles, California, known as Watts. I want to start by discussing the first shot of this film because I love how it, it sets the tone of the film. It put me in that story time mood where you open a book and see a picture or you look at the cover art of a book and it gives you a hint of what's inside on the pages. This film opens on a painting of Central Avenue and 34th Street in Los Angeles during the summer of 1948. The hustle and bustle of the painting, it just jumps alive when the shot turns into live action showing black folks going on about their business. This choice to open the movie immediately got me excited because I love seeing period pieces featuring black people and just the dignity that people had walking down the street in their hats and gloves that just always gets me so the camera then pans up to a window where we see Easy Rollins who is played by Denzel Washington and he's in Joffe's bar reading the newspaper looking for a job or at least some type of a work for the day. We learn that he was recently fired from his job at an aviation defense plant where he was working as an, I believe, an aircraft machinist. 
And again, I love that he's not just some Joe Smo or downtrodden black character. He's a man with pride. A former military man who picked up the trade of being a machinist that is now trying to grab a piece of the American pie that has been promised. After serving in the military, he saved up his money to buy a home in what is known as South Central Los Angeles. In a flashback scene, his supervisor gives him the news that his employment has been terminated. And even after Easy tries to explain to him that he needs his job to pay his mortgage, the supervisor is unmoved and tries to dismiss Easy and calls him Bella. And in that grand fashion that Denzel Washington is known for, where he he just uh, he embodies a character and exudes dignity. He, or rather Easy, looks this white man in his eyes and lets him know. My name is Ezekiel Rollins, not Bella. See, right then, the viewer gets the message. This is a black man with dignity and purpose, and he is going to be in charge of his destiny and fate for the rest of this film. Oh, and he's about his money. But things aren't going to just be happening to him. Rather, he's going to be handling everything thrown at him. So, moving along back to the present, in walks the opportunity of a lifetime. Or so it seems when a character by the name of Mr. Albright, played by... Tom Sizemore walks into Joppy's bar. A mysterious white man wearing a trench coat and a wide brim fedora hat, a la any murder mystery type of film of the 40s, he extends a job offer to Easy, merely telling him that he does favor, favors for friends. He hands Easy a business card. And we are now set up to see what adventure is in store if or when Easy takes him up on his offer. And two months behind on his mortgage, Easy he dismisses the uneasy feeling about Albright and decides to go see him about the job. And we find out the job seemingly is simple. It's to find the fiancé of mayoral candidate Todd Carter, who goes by the name of Daphne Monet. Now, Daphne Monet apparently has a predilection for Negro company. She likes jazz and pig speed. That sounds typical of most white women living in Los Angeles in 1948 right anyways Todd Carter has dropped out of the mayoral race for reasons unknown but there's something that would make the average person's spidey senses go up and figure out that Miss Monet 
might have something to do with the reason he dropped out of the race. Izzy is suspicious because Mr. Albright only wants a location on her and seemingly requires nothing else, but he takes Albright's $100 and he accepts the job. Now for screenwriters, I think this film is a great example to show how within the first 10 minutes, we learn about what the protagonist problem is and what he wants. As a viewer, you have totally bought into the main character's story and you're set to go on a journey to see how he solves this problem. Here, Easy is two months behind on his mortgage and lost his job, so he's in need of cash and quick. And what do you know? In walks the answer to his problem. Mr. Albright. But we see that the job Mr. Albright is offering comes with strings attached. What those strings are, we don't know yet, but as a viewer, you're all in to find out. This is what you're conventionally taught to strive for as a screenwriter. Hook the reader roughly in the first 10 minutes and Carl Franklin does that masterfully here, in my opinion. So moving on, Easy sets out to find Daphne Monet. I love how Easy takes us on a trip to the underground club scene in Los Angeles. He goes to a club that is located in a secret room of a storefront ran by a black woman. This reminded me of juke joints in the Jim Crow South, which were semi-private spaces for black people to socialize during segregation where they could listen to music and drink liquor and sometimes gamble in peace with minimal harassment from the police or white people. While people like to think California was more evolved on the racial front during those times, similar established establishments were here as well and definitely needed. But continuing on, Easy moves through the club asking about a white girl and if anyone knows of her. We are foreshadowed about a character named Mouse who has one of the highlight roles in the film. When Easy asks one of the club dwellers named Junior about this white girl, Junior turns around and asks Easy about his friend Mouse and if Easy helped Mouse kill his stepfather and brother. Easy nonchalantly dismisses Junior's question and keeps on his quest to find Daphne. But right here, we see that our perception of who Easy is is not so straightforward. He may not be so straight laced, but might have some skeletons in his closet. What does this mean for the rest of the story as it plays out? 
to me, this is another sample of good writing and, you know, one of the reasons why I love this film. A good suspense or mystery film leaves a little, little Easter eggs of info and puzzle pieces about the characters or the story so that if you're paying attention, they come together at some point. So eventually, Easy speaks to another character named Coretta, played by Lisa Nicole Carson, who lets on that she knows Daphne. A quick note about Lisa Nicole Carson, she is one of the highlights of this film for me. She's one of those actresses who can make a relatively small role in a film so memorable. She has such a charismatic presence on screen where she can be in a film for, I don't know, five or ten minutes and she'll be one of your favorite characters. She stole scenes in several movies. Um, for instance, in Eve's Bayou, where she played one of Samuel Jackson's mistresses. Um, she's also had standout, uh, uh, let me see, standout roles in Love Jones, and another one that I really love. Um, she had a role in Jason's Lyric, where she played um, a southern sassy waitress where you know she was wearing those outrageous sky-high ponytails that were all the rage amongst us black girls in the 90s and she delivered that classic line the bigger the titty the bigger the tips some may say those are words to live by but back to easy and coretta when they leave the club and go to her place, I love the dance that Carl Carson and Washington's characters do, both trying to get information from each other without flat out asking it. We can tell Coretta has eyes for Easy and is flirting with him, but seems jealous that he's asking about a white woman. Easy picks up on this and assures her that he's not seeking Daphne on some personal stuff. I love when he says, girl, if that son catches me tiptoeing out your door, no telling what your neighbors would say. This is a line that makes you love how authors like Walter Mosley can make language be so poetic and beautiful, but also authentic to the black experience. This line, it reminds me of Denzel in Fences, when his character Troy tells Viola Davis's character Rose, we go upstairs in that room at night and I fall on you and try to blast a hole into forever. You have to credit August Wilson's writing ability, 
but also Denzel's delivery just adds layers to magnify the words you know just off the paper and on the screen but getting back to this film so like a good friend Coretta initially sticks to her guns on not giving up Daphne's whereabouts however once she gets her spot hit over and over by easy if you've seen the film you'll get that reference she spills the tea that Daphne has been shacking up with a small-time colored gangster named Frank Green after easy delivers this info to Mr. Albright He's then picked up by police detectives on suspicion of killing Coretta, who turned up dead that same morning of their sexual encounter. As Easy describes it, the game of cops and niggers kept up when I left the precinct. As another fancy car pulls up beside him upon getting out of the precinct, we're introduced to another character named Mr. Terrell. Mr. Terrell is accompanied by a young boy in the car, which seems very odd at the time of night that it is, but apparently he also wants to know who killed Coretta. So just when you think Easy will never come face to face with Miss Daphne Monet. She winds up calling him in the middle of the night and tells Easy to meet her at the Ambassador Hotel. She leaves instructions for the bellboy to sneak him up to the whites only section of the hotel. We finally meet Miss Daphne Monet. When she greets Easy in her suite, wearing a stunning blue floor-length glamorous house coat with a long slit. Miss Monet is played by Jennifer Bill. If you were of the movie-going age in the 80s, then you'll remember Jennifer Bill from Flashdance fame. That was a very big movie for her. She's more recently known for her role in the Showtime series, The L Word. But moving on, Easy is not impressed as he wants to know if Daphne had anything to do with Coretta getting killed, to which Daphne denies. But she does have a request for Easy to take her to a home at the top of Laurel Canyon to retrieve a letter. Reluctant to get sucked into something deeper and also aware of the danger to be a black man seen in the same car with a white woman, he finally agrees to take her after Daphne points out that Easy was the last person with Coretta before she was killed. And vice versa, Easy points out that Daphne was the last person with Coretta. Now this next scene is one that really stands out to me because 
it just gives me the feeling that I am really watching a movie where I can see the film director's work, the intentional choices that he's made. So once Easy and Daphne get to the home of Richard McGee on Laurel Canyon, we see that someone got there first and it wasn't good. The scene starts on a shot from inside the home looking out a window as Daphne walks up. The camera pans to the doorway, then there's a slow zoom in on Daphne as she approaches the door and we see her eyes get big as Easy walks up and they both can't believe their eyes. This is just great foreshadowing. Then the camera cuts to a shot of the inside of the house. It's everything is in shambles. This was a great way to build suspense. Easy and Daphne discover McGee covered in blood and dead. Easy remembers him from the club a day before and this is shown in a quick flashback where McGee was a seemingly drunk white man trying to get into that underground club but now it's apparent that he must have also been there for some for the same reason that Easy was looking for Daphne Monet. Freaked out Daphne rushes out of the home and dries off leaving Easy stranded before he can make heads or tails of what's going on. When Easy gets home, he is met by an angry Albright and his goons because the Frank Green tip turns out to be bad. As Frank doesn't live at the address anymore. Easy wants out at this point, but Albright lets him know that he's now connected to two murders at this point. So now Easy has no choice but to find Frank Green. At this point, Easy sees he needs backup and makes a call to, I believe it's Charleston, North Carolina, to send word to Mouse, his old stomping ground partner. Come to find out, Joffy knew Daphne's whereabouts the whole time. He is the one who gave Daphne Easy's number, trying to help her and Easy both get some quick money. Tired of all the runaround, Easy decides to go to the top and meets Tart Carter in person. He learns that Carter didn't actually hire Albright to find Daphne, and in fact, he thought Daphne had left town. Carter then offers Easy money to find Daphne. Now hit to the trouble it's given him to locate Daphne, Easy asks for $1,000 to do the job this time around because a honey is just not going to do. With the assumption that Matthew Terrell had hired Albright to find Daphne, Easy hits the bar club circuit again looking for Frank Green. But Frank finds Easy first, attacking Easy inside his home. 
Mouse arrives just in time to save Easy from getting his throat cut. We quickly learn of Mouse's hothead tendencies when he shoots Frank in the shoulder while Easy interrogates him about finding a white girl for the $1,000 reward. Eventually, Easy learns that Coretta was in possession of a letter from McGee, the dead man Easy and Daphne discovered. They go to Coretta's old man Dupree's house and find the letter hidden in a Bible that she had given him for safekeeping. This brings us to another scene that I really love where we see the camera show Easy rummaging through drawers to find the Bible and the camera watches in the mirror as Easy's hands open the letter. He finds pictures of Matthew Terrell in scandalous poses with young naked children. The scene continues with the next shot being of Easy trying to wake Mouse up after he fell asleep, having gotten drunk with Dupree in order to keep him occupied while Easy was trying to find the letter. Not fully awake, he keeps pulling his gun on Easy. That's Mouse, Mouse that is, keeps pulling his gun, and Easy has to talk Mouse down from not shooting him. It's definitely one of the more memorable scenes in the film. And just great acting by Don Cheadle and Denzel Washington. These two have such great chemistry in this film. It would be really great to see them in another dynamic duo type of role again. They did both appear in the film Flight in 2012. However, their interaction in that film didn't, it didn't have the same dynamic as it did here. But moving on, now the story comes out that Albright, Albright had killed McGee, who sold the pictures to Daphne. And right on time, Daphne appears at Easy's house. She offers to pay him $7,000 for these pictures that he found um, in Coretta's Bible. She reveals that Frank is her half-brother and that Terrell is hanging the fact that she's half-black over her head. Her mother is Creole and her father a white man, which explains her passable complexion. Daphne feels that her and Carter will be able to get married once she provides the scandalous pictures. She reveals also that Joffe is the one who killed Coretta. Albright winds up kidnapping Daphne, prompting Easy to go on a mission to rescue her because he knows that Albright will likely kill her and try to frame him for all the murders. He and Mouse go to Joffe's bar 
where Easy drags Jaffe out of his bar and makes him give directions on how to get to this secluded cabin where Albright took Daphne. Mouse almost kills Joffe on the ride up up there to the cabin when Easy explains he's the one who killed Dupree's girl Coretta. Easy finds the cabin where they are torturing Daphne for the pictures. Mouse and Easy get in a shootout with Albright and his goons and save Daphne. When they make their way to their car to get away, Easy finds that Mouse has killed Joffe in order to help Easy with Albright. Easy is devastated because while Joffe was wrong, this was just extra carnage that Easy wanted to avoid. Here we get another one of Mouse's golden lines in the movie. If you ain't want him killed, why you leave him with me? It's sad that he makes so much sense in that moment because it was inevitable and it's what Easy summoned him for. After all of this, Easy takes Daphne to Tara Carter, but he tells her that they still can't be together. Their race is still a barrier. He gives Todd the pictures, and Todd promises that Easy won't have trouble with the police. Easy drops a defeated and devastated Daphne to her brother Frank's place, a fourplex on Dinker Street. She divulged to Easy that her real name was Ruby Hanks and she was from Lake Charles, Louisiana. A little bit later, when Easy felt guilty for taking the money she had paid him, he tried to return it but found that Ruby and Frank had picked up and left town. After this whole crazy ride comes to an end, Easy decides to go into business for himself as a private investigator and possibly get into real estate investing. Why seek another job that he can be fired from by a white man when he can just work for himself? He comes to the conclusion, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter if you on top of that trouble. I love how the scene ends on his street in a black community with children playing in the streets, neighbors kind of chilling in their yards, drinking beer, and visiting with each other. The camera closes in on a mid shot of Denzel with two vertical rows of palm trees blurred behind him. Then we cut back to shots of the kids playing, manicured lawns, etc. Then we cut back to Easy with a long shot of him walking down the street, back to his house as a voiceover of Denzel is heard talking about sitting on his porch with his friend. I love this shot because this is a side of Black Los Angeles that you hardly ever see in film or television. Just hard working, middle class black people 
in one of many Los Angeles neighborhoods um, and you see how beautiful they are and we are in them this shot it remind me of a time when I left my church which is located in the West Adams district in Los Angeles and this group of white theology students who had visited um, for church service were making their way to the parking lot and they were just in such awe at the homes in the, the neighborhood and one of the students commented that they were great Gatsby like houses and how beautiful they were and how shocked they were to see you know well-maintained homes in the area and that just made me think of how there are still so many untold stories of black Los Angelinos in particular and I would love to see you know just more period just more period films showcasing them so now for the second part of my discussion on the film Devil in a Blue Dress, I want to focus on the novel written by Mr. Walter Mosley in which the film was adapted from. As I mentioned earlier, I was moved to read this book because I was interested to see mainly what artistic licenses were taken and if there were important things in the film that deviated from the source material. And usually the saying is that the book is always better than the movie so I just also wanted to see if there were maybe deeper layers to the characters and overall story that just didn't make it to the final script. I was also interested in the decisions that Carl Franklin made as a screenwriter in regards to what characters and what aspects of the novel he chose to include in the screenplay. And I have to say that I definitely I found those choices to be quite intriguing. I think he did a great overall job of capturing the essence of Easy Rollins and the overall tone and feel of the novel. After reading it, it seems like certain characters just jumped right off the page onto the screen. The film casting was spot on and the dialogue was nicely adapted from the book and translated into you know um, script dialogue. That was definitely one of the things that stuck out to me because every time I've watched the film certain scenes they stuck out because the dialogue just seemed so poetic or like a dramatic monologue in a play. And not surprisingly, the dialogue from each of those scenes in the film were taken basically verbatim from the book. 
So as a screenwriter, Carl Franklin must have had to notate from each chapter certain strings of dialogue that were just powerful and could not be tweaked, you know, but came but needed to come right from Walter Mosley's imagination. For instance, I know I mentioned before in the first part of this film chat how I love when Denzel Washington's character says, girl, if that sun catches me tiptoeing out your door, no telling what your neighbors would say. That was verbatim out of the book. And something like this is so important because it gives the film the same flavor as the novel. That 1940s down south black diction. And how Denzel delivers it makes you picture how your older uncles or grandfathers used to rap to ladies back in their day. It's just a spot on and it's just a reminder of, um, you know, Denzel's acting range. Another scene from the film I was curious to see how it was written was the one where Don Cheeto's character Mouse um, who so drunk and in a sleeping daze keeps pulling out his gun on Denzel's character in the kitchen. He says if I was drunk could I do this and the description details Mouse moving fast, pulling the gun on Easy. Then Easy, realizing his eyes were glazed over, talked him into giving this crazy fool another chance, which in actuality, he's the crazy fool and talking to save his own life. Again, how those pages are translated on screen, on screen by the actors and captured by the screenwriting and the director are just so awesome and spot on. Um, I just imagined the film playing out as I read those pages. So just like again Franklin he just was able to capture the tone of the novel perfectly like nothing was lost in translation something else that I found interesting and in what the screenwriter chose to incorporate from the novel was how he condensed characters down or scenes into you know uh, several scenes into one or two so that was done with various bar scenes that appeared in the book um, but were dwindled down to like one scene in the film. One example I really like was with a character named Sophie Anderson. In the film she is shown for probably 15 seconds as she drives by Easy in a truck loaded up with all of her belongings in it. Easy ask her ask ask her 
where she's going and she says back to Texas because LA is too fast for her and in the book Sophie she packs up and she leaves too but Easy reflects back on her at another time and he goes into more description about the life she left behind in Houston and how being a true southerner she could never last in Los Angeles. I love how all of that was portrayed in like 10 or 15 seconds probably on film. We got all of that information specified in the book in that short amount of time. The filmmaker could have easily left this out but again it was a nugget that added to the flavor and tone of the story so he added that to the film. I also love the racial and ethnic diversity that both the film and book portray. However, I noticed that the book had an important character that was Latino and the book gave a bit more of a description of how the Latino and black worlds collide in Los Angeles and that's just something that's just very important when depicting Los Angeles even when telling an african-american story those two communities coexistence is just is central just as much as you know how each of those different groups coexist with the white world so that's just something that again makes this film just seem so authentic to Los Angeles, the real Los Angeles. Another thing I was curious about was whether the book's ending differed from the film and if the mystery played out the same way. The overall theme of the book was pretty similar to the film in that Easy was a war veteran turned pseudo private investigator looking for this mysterious white woman who turns out to be a biracial black woman passing for white in which several high-powered white men are trying to find her because of the secret and how it could affect them. The changes that stuck out to me though were for one how the film changed Daphne Monet's character from being blonde and blue-eyed to a brown-eyed brunette. It wasn't a choice that took much from the integrity of the story or anything but I feel like the actress Jennifer Bill who played Daphne Monet could play an ethnically ambiguous person she does seem like she's a person of color be it a light-skinned black person or even um, a Latina and I guess even if you wanted to stretch it she could pass for being Italian or I guess a Greek person, you know, someone of a olive skin complexion. However, the book made it seem like the character of Daphne Monet was a lily white person. 
So much that when Easy had sex with her, he didn't realize she was black or even biracial, however you want to phrase it. The book character even comments on how her pubic hair didn't even betray her. So, you know, she had the wet and wavy downstairs too. So, I just wonder if Jennifer Bill was always imagined by the director or producers for the role because of her already being an established actress and that's why they didn't go with an actress more closer to the book's description. Again, it's not a big deal um, as far as the overall plot of the film, but I feel like the book went deeper into the taboo subject matter of interracial love and sexual relationships in the 40s in a way that the film did not. Another difference from the book that I found significant was Easy and Daphne's characters having a sexual relationship. In the film, Easy is uninterested in an intimate relationship with Daphne and even rejects her advances at him. It seems like the filmmaker purposely made the film version of Easy to strictly be interested in sex with a black woman, whereas in the book, Easy has sex with the black woman, but also seemingly begins to fall in love with Daphne's character, who is a white woman for all he knows at the time that they actually have sex. Did Carl Franklin do this because he didn't want to venture into the subject matter of a black man desiring a white woman? Because the whole reveal of the film is that Daphne is passing. The interracial relationship between a black woman and a white man has to be touched on. But Mr. Franklin opted not to go with the reversal of a black man and white woman, even though technically it wasn't really an interracial relationship, but the black man conducted himself as if he was with a white man, woman. And along the same lines, as it relates to Daphne Monet and Todd Carter's relationship, I found it interesting how in the film, Todd Carter, Todd Carter is the one who rejects Daphne Monet, seemingly because he knows that it would be unacceptable for him to have a black biracial wife if he intends to run for mayor. Daphne spends the whole film trying to find these photos that will incriminate his, his opponent for child pornography so that she could give them, you know, to Todd to have as a weapon to protect their love. And then he rejects her when Easy delivers her, you know, to Carter. 
and Carter pays her a large sum of money to leave town. And, you know, watching the film, I took that as face value being, you know, the way things likely had to play out in the 40s. However, in the novel, it's the opposite, actually. Daphne rejects Todd Carter. Carter wants to reunite with her. However, she is the one who comes to the conclusion that they can't be together because of her secret. And she steals $30,000 from him in order to leave town to start a new life. So this just gave me real pause because... Why would a black filmmaker choose to make it seem like this black woman was ultimately socially undesirable in some way to her white lover? I mean, it would be a pretty powerful choice for an interracial couple in, you know, the 40s. Maybe the answer to this would be more apparent if this film had been made between, you know, the 1940s to possibly, you know, the the 1980s, just because society was still pretty conservative in showing interracial unions in the media. But for this film to be made in the 90s, it just it's curious to me that this was important enough of a detail to change. I guess Mr. Franklin or producers wanted for the main character to be a black man who only desired a black woman sexually and for the black woman to be seemingly punished in the end for thinking she could live happily ever after with this rich and powerful white man. I don't know how I feel about that. It kind of reminds me of the film Dirty Gertie from Harlem, where you had a sexually liberated black woman who was ultimately punished for being just that. Because I, while I personally love to see black love between a black man and a black woman expressed on screen, since it's not shown often enough, It is curious to me that in this situation, the chance to show a black woman having the possible option to explore love with a non-black man was totally eliminated when the book the film was based on does just that. It's just an example of how film is such a powerful medium and the messages that can be sent. But it's also a reminder of how books can be more liberal and progressive of a medium than film at times, it seems. So lastly, while I think that Carl Franklin did an excellent job in directing a classic detective crime drama where you have Easy Rollins as a slick detective with Edge who always who's always confident and seamlessly handles everything thrown at him 
The novel shows a more complicated Easy Rollins, who is unsure about a lot of things. He expresses having fear in several circumstances that he doesn't in the film. He considers leaving town to run away from his problems. He's vulnerable with his feelings for Daphne and her not being reciprocal of his feelings. While again, I definitely love the film version of Easy Rollins, a confident and charismatic individual. It's a Hollywood hero with little to no flaws. But Walter Mosley's Easy Rollins is an imperfect and sometimes sensitive, oftentimes reflective protagonist. So, I think that pretty much sums up all of my impressions of Devil in a Blue Dress. Again, in my opinion, a classic film that deserves accolades upon accolades, especially being that it's been 25 years since its initial release in theaters. If you haven't seen this film, Again, I highly encourage you to do so, and it's actually um, streaming on the Stars Network right now, Um, or if you have seen it, see it again, and pick up the book while you're at it as well. That's all for this episode. Until next time.